Welcome to the Death Science Podcast, where we explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. You can find the audio on all major podcast platforms by searching Death Science Podcast, and you can find the video on YouTube at www.deathscience.tv. You can learn more about the show at deathscience.org. Welcome to episode number 13. Today's guest is Cassandra Kuba, a forensic anthropology professor at California University in Pennsylvania. We'll be talking about stuff like career path options for people interested in pursuing forensic science. Also, how exactly TV crime shows misrepresent investigations and forensics. What can one expect when working with the dead and decaying? Also, why forensic research facilities, also known as body farms, are so important and needed. And we talk about so, so much more. But before we get started, I want to talk about catacombculture.com. This is where I sell my sculptures. My sculptures being functional home decor I make out of hyper-realistic human bones. From human bone lamps to food-safe skull bowls, I make a lot of memento more friendly pieces that serve as reminders that our lifespans are limited. So let's make the best out of the time we have left. You could explore my bone gallery at catacombculture.com. Also, restinggrounds.org will guide you in exploring alternative post-life care for your deceased body. Your deceased body has the potential to literally save lives, advance multiple fields of science, and so much more. Learn more at restinggrounds.org. Now let's meet Cassandra and explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. On this episode of Death Science Podcast, we are joined by Cassandra Kuba, who is a professor of anthropology at the California University in Pennsylvania. Hey, Cassandra, how are you today? I'm good, and yourself? Good, good. So tell us a little bit about forensic anthropology. What is that? (laughs) Um, So forensic anthropology is uh, a field of study that combines both archaeology and biological anthropology to help in death investigations. So we can assist with the search, recovery, and analysis of human remains, usually in a decomposed state, um, to help figure out who the person was, how long they've been deceased, and what had happened to them. Hmm. When I think of uh, archaeology, for some reason I think, um, oh, it's Indiana Jones. Now, is that just a Hollywood kind of fictional character or is that kind of like what's what's modern day archaeology look like nothing like indiana does uh he's he's more reminiscent of 19th century antiquarians who would loot sites under the guise of learning about past cultures with little respect for those cultures per se um but archaeology is still very fascinating. Um, so one of the other things that I do is bioarchaeology, and that's essentially doing the forensics of the past. And um, so that excitement of discovering something that hasn't been seen for centuries, um, or learning little tidbits about a person's life that hadn't been recorded in the history books, um, it, that's very exciting, but it's also many tedious hours. Uh, working in all sorts of conditions um, or many hours bent over um, in the lab analyzing whatever it is that you found. So um, fame and glory it is not, but it's extremely fascinating. Hmm. I feel like, um, are there any new 
archaeology sites that may have been, you know, made current headlines or anything like that? Um, well, my news feeds are always a bit biased because um, outside of the U.S., I've done a lot of work in England, so I get a lot of uh, British news feeds on like new hordes that have been discovered or new facets about a site that's been found. Um, with a lot of people being shut in, there there was a um, an online course, if you will, of um, students, faculty, and general public. Um, viewing over lidar images so that that's laser scans of the landscape and finding new sites like there was a, a new hill fort i think it was in scotland that was discovered that way um or like for this i'm a nerd so for fun i like to pick random locations on google maps and look for signs of human activity um, that might still be evident in those satellite images that's one of the things i do for fun um, so there's been a lot of that um, that people have been doing and helping to locate places that once things settle down, if they're able to go out and about again, um, for them to explore. My dissertation chair, uh, Dr. Brenda Baker at Arizona State University, she has done a lot of work in Sudan and a lot of her preliminary research was making use of satellite um, images to help pinpoint locations for them to check out when they were over there for the field season. So it's a very legitimate way of getting a feel for what's out there without having to be on the ground um, hmm. right away. And um, so that's one of the things that you can do during this, you know, downtime, if you will. Nice. Do you have any tips as to find these like really good, like random points around the world? Um, so if you're not using LIDAR, which is able to like sort of ignore the vegetation, looking at places that don't have a lot of trees helps. So, you know, like the desert locations, or I've been looking a lot out west, um, or where there's a lot of grassland, because you can get crop marks if there are, um, say, stone structures underneath the ground, it interrupts the roots. And so um, that can affect how the vegetation is growing. That's something that we use to look for buried bodies. Um, and so that's something that I'll go for is to, yeah, places without lots of trees so mm -hmm. that you have a chance to see the ground surface. Nice. Yeah, I see um, for all my TikTok friends listening or watching, yeah, on uh, on TikTok, there's this app called Randonautica. Have you heard of it? Oh, I heard because there were some teenagers that found a dead body in a yeah. suitcase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that app has swept TikTok for sure and intrigued a lot of uh, curious adventurers. And uh, yeah, oh. so I know uh, a lot of people would appreciate to, um, <clears throat> was it LiDAR technology you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So L I D A R. Um, it's really interesting. They've found, um, say, like in Central and South America, that they've identified roadways and pyramids they didn't know were there because they've been so covered by the vegetation, or um, other sites in like Southeast Asia again, where the vegetation might be too heavy that you're not going to see it when you're on the ground, and um, you can attach lidar devices to drones now. Before it used to have, it, they used to have to use helicopters and airplanes, but now they have smaller units that you can mount to drones to look in a specific area. So it's really cool what they're able to do with that technology. Hmm. Now, have you heard any fun conspiracy theories that you might be able to debunk for us as far as archaeology goes? 
I'm not sure off the top of my head. I hadn't thought about conspiracy theories. I mean, people will often ask me if hair and nails continue to grow after a body, mm. you know, after a person has died and and they seem so saddened when I tell them, no, they don't. It's just the skin shrinking and making them appear like they're longer. Um, burst that bubble. <laughs> <laughs> but then they can go and turn, burst somebody else's bubble by sharing that information. But um, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. So one thing I like to do is create videos that make people think, right? And I came across this one collection of videos about giant human bones, that there was a race of giants that roamed is, what, what do you think? Um, one of my professors, when I was working on my doctorate, actually analyzed some of those remains. And I think the individuals tended to be taller than the average Peruvian, but not on the scale of like someone who's seven and a half, eight feet tall or anything like that, but they were, if memory serves, taller than average for that area. Oh, I see. Yeah, I've I've seen some things where people like they were twelve to fifteen feet tall, and they were cannibals and all that. So I'm like, oh my god. Or there was um one that was it was fetal remains, but they were claiming that it was an alien because the head was so misshapen and mm. it looked so weird that they felt it had to be alien and yeah i seen that a few years ago I'm like no that's just someone who was not full term that's fetal skeletons look really weird <laughs> even newborn skeletons look really weird um so it's yeah it's just normal variation that's one of the things that's important for us any of us who are working with um, skeletal remains to have an appreciation for range of human variation hmm. and to know what's normal what's not normal and if you only work on one population anything that looks different from that one population you're going to think is abnormal pathological it has to be alien or just something other right it's really not that's just variation and um it's one of the important things for us to have a lot of collections to work with in order to be able to appreciate that range of variation uh another I don't know if it's conspiracy theory, but um, what was that lost city of Atlantis? Is that is that real or is that just kind of like mythical? What do you think? Um, well, I mean, there's definitely been cities lost to rising seawaters for sure or have fallen off into the ocean due to earthquakes or what have you. Um, but I think... Um, there's always like a kernel of truth to things, but whether or not it's a full-blown city of Atlantis, I don't quite buy myself, but there's definitely evidence of, you know, structures and monuments that have now been covered by the oceans that could have fueled. So we mentioned, uh, uh, was Indiana Jones being a mythical portrayal of the archaeologists. So when it comes to TV shows like, say, CSI or Bones or more forensic anthropology and forensic crime scene investigation, how far-fetched are those shows? Um, I've advised for a lot of shows. So I, I know where their heart is at and the types of questions that they're asking. But then I also know they've got to make things look good for television. And um, so again, kind of like with the idea of Atlantis, there's a kernel of truth, but they, they have to speed things up. They have to, they also make it look a lot easier than it is. 
Um, you know, there, there's been times that I had been asked questions for bones that I would write them a huge response to give them all like the scientific background on something. And then it's just like on the screen and it's gone. And that was all that for just like 0.5 seconds of, of television. Um, but they tried, you know, CSI really kind of started that push to try to be as realistic as possible within the world of Hollywood and um, working still with that realism on bones. And um, have there been many other shows that have gone as far um, in, in pulling in the, the outside researchers to help consult on the shows? You know, they might have an intern or assistant who pokes around a little bit. A lot of shows will do that, but um, CSI pushed really hard uh, to have real world experts advising. Um, it, most of us were not credited. I'd get swag every now and then, but um, you know, it, for me, it was a good exercise. And still when I get questions, sometimes they'll be so far from left field where I'll be like, where in the, what? But then I'll start thinking about, okay, where is the science? How can we make this seem more accurate um, and find out areas where there's more research that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And so I'd often encourage my students to um, consider doing research papers or projects on things that might have been initially stimulated by these shows to say, let's see where this goes or what else can we do with this? Because uh, Bones was always really interested in getting toxicological results from decomposed remains. And unless it's a heavy metal that was taken up by the bone or the hair or the nails and they're decomposed, we're, we're not going to have much to test for toxicology. And so um, trying to see, you know, what else can we propose to them to consider, you know, whether it's something in the burial environment to make something preserve a little better than it normally would. Um, it gets your creative juices flowing. And that's one of the things I love besides being grounded in science is still getting to use my imagination and creativity. And so um, at first I wasn't too keen on helping with the shows because I'm like, oh, they're so over the top. My mom loved CSI and I just got their puns. It's just, oh, it's painful to watch. But um, I started to see the opportunity to help them be more accurate and then also to help get my students involved. And the fact that for many of my students, that was their first introduction to forensic sciences in general, um, or with bones that you know, so many students will tell me, oh, I first got interested in learning about the skeleton from bones. And I'm like, oh, really? You know, when it was still on, I was like, you can actually help advise for the show. How would you like to do that? And um, so, always trying to find that positive spin, but it, it's been fun. Um, lately, there hasn't been as much push for the forensic science stuff. Been doing a lot of research um, to, on other things because they've learned I'm, I'm a good researcher and I love to learn. So they throw almost any question at me and I'll see what I can find out. And I don't know the answer. I probably know someone who does and I'll get them in touch with them. And then I'll be curious to see what they say. Um, that's, I'm, an eternal student so any opportunity to learn something new i look forward to it 
Awesome. So, <clears throat> yeah, same. Uh, with the content that I post, a lot, I get, I receive a lot of messages and inquiries asking me, you know, uh, an individual is inspired by, say, CSI or Bones, and then they come to me. It's like, hey, how do I get started to get onto that crime scene? And I'm like, ooh, that's a really good question. So, what's what's your advice for individuals who are very passionate to learn more about forensics and actually want to pursue that as a career? what kind of path is in store for them? Well, it'll depend on the nature of what exactly they want to do. Um, so if they want to be oh, like a crime scene technician and really just um, helping with gathering the evidence in the field versus being more lab-based, um, you know, that oftentimes the archeology span comes really in handy for the, for the crime scene element for the mapping purposes. Um, but if they see themselves wanting to work more with the evidence and analyzing, uh, probably biology and chemistry right now are the biggest things to go for. Um, I'll tell my students, like, pay attention to the American Academy of Forensic Sciences website. It's aafs.org. Look at the employment opportunities. See what cre uh, credentials they're looking for. And it's usually biology, chemistry, or related field. Um, and generally, once you're trained in at least some of the basics of um, laboratory analysis, if the crime lab needs you to be trained to do something else, then they'll usually train you, you know, to do, say, ballistics analysis or blood spatter analysis. But the main thing is the biology and the chemistry, because they need a lot of toxicologists and they need a lot of folks to analyze um, DNA samples. And so the, those are the two big areas. When students um, are interested in the skeleton, but they want to do more with um, less decomposed remains, I've encouraged students to consider forensic pathology. But for that, you need to go on to med school first and then get additional training in the pathology. And I was daunted by the idea of going to med school and having to treat living people first, you know, as you're doing your clinical rotations, that I did not want that responsibility. I just wanted to stick with the already dead people. And so that wasn't a path for me, um, but one of my students was recently accepted into medical school. She's gonna go on for the, the forensic pathology track. So um, she kept the anthropology major and she minored in biology because um, forensic pathologists have to wear many hats. You know, they have to have some grounding in the chemistry and uh, they have to do a lot of dissection and they get a little bit into the skeletal analysis, but just a smidgen. And so with what she had worked on, she'll have a lot more of that skeletal experience behind her. So when she you know, gets a position one day, she'll be better qualified than many to do analysis of the decomposed remains herself. Hmm. Uh, how about the career path for a forensic anthropologist that wants to be in the field and help catch those bad guys? So forensic anthropology is one of those disciplines where um, a bachelor's alone is not going to cut it. Um, now, you could potentially get in, say, with the FBI on one of their crime scene response teams where you'll be more experienced in doing archaeological excavation and being able to tell that's not human in some of the basics, but you won't be qualified to do the analysis itself. You'd be a, a well-trained helper. But essentially in our discipline, they're expecting that doctorate. Um, so it 
between bachelor's, master's, PhD, it took me 12 years. Um, and some programs are doing away with the master's. So one of my students just started at Arizona State. My alma mater, I went in there just with a doctorate. I had already had a master's. She just got her bachelor's. She's already in the doctoral program. So she has the potential of getting completed a few years ahead than I was. Um, I was, how old was I when I graduated from that? <laughs> what, 30? Uh, I think it was 30 by the time I graduated with that. No, 31, 31. Um, so that's a long time to be in school. I scare my son when I tell him I've been in school, you know, since 1980. <laughs> um, and he's like, what? <laughs> it's like, it's a lot. I like to learn. What can I say? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a long time to be really poor though. <laughs> I'm a graduate student. So, um, you know, I'll let my current students know. I'm like, I've been there. I've lived on the, the sniff the milk. How long can we stretch that out? <laughs> you know, cause I can't afford to buy any more milk. Um, it's like, I've been there and mm -hmm persistence and patience eventually you'll get there it just it can be a long road i didn't really earn a decent paycheck until i was like 32 so um it's a long time carry a lot of debt with you so <laughs> they'll have that riding over me so when it comes to like lab work lab analysis you're we're looking at biology and chemistry as uh it's like majors things right now um because you can get in as long as you're seeking out as many opportunities as possible to get extra experience, not just counting on the coursework, but going that extra mile, getting involved in independent research with your faculty. Um, if you're qualified to get in with the honors program and seek out additional work for more hours in the lab, anytime you can volunteer to help out your faculty, that's gonna be crucial. So, uh, cause one of the hardest things is I just got my bachelor's degree but I can't apply for any entry level positions because they want two years of experience. How do I, I just graduated? I can't get the experience without getting the job. And so all that volunteer work and internships um, are crucial. The students who really, really bust their butts in doing all that extra work, it's a juggle. One of my majors a few years ago, um, she was a dual major, anthropology and criminal justice, forensic science combo. Um, you know, she had a fantastic internship with one of the local county coroners and she always looked for what else could she help them with. And um, shortly after graduating, she was successful in a competitive job search for a deputy coroner position. She did that for a little over the, a year. She's now out in San Francisco as a certified death investigator because she wanted something a bit spicier than what she was getting in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. So um, she's out there in San Francisco and she worked her butt off. If you're just going to class, skimming the surface, just doing what you need to do to pass, eventually that's gonna catch up with you. And um, so it's like, you've got to find that balance of dedication to your coursework. Doesn't have to be straight A's finding some leadership positions, things to volunteer with and get involved in. That's where you're going to be getting all that extra experience that you can speak about when you go for those job searches and have someone see that potential in you and be willing to say, you know what, might not have as much experience as say this candidate, but I see the fire in that person. I'm going to go with them. They're trainable. They got that fire, that passion, that desire. 
let's see what we can do and how we can all work towards a success um, going forward. So um, some students are very receptive to that advice, but it's, it's tough because, um, you know, we all want to have some downtime, but you've got to find how to have a little bit of downtime for the stress relief, but then also mm. make the most out of every minute that you can. What kind of major would that be considered for the, the lab analysis? Um, so a lot of places, again, if you just take your basic biology courses, most schools will have a lot of lab analysis associated with that. Like most classes will have a lab component to it. Or for chemistry, definitely, like pretty much every class is going to have a lab component. Now, for me, I don't have separate labs, but most of my courses, I work in that hands-on experience. And then I'm always looking for um, projects that we can do to help with the community that I can get my students involved in so that they're doing a lot more analysis. Okay. So it's more of like, okay, I'm going to register for biology as a major and then apply to jobs in forensic labs? Yeah, because it's... It's easy enough to take a few, um, say, an intro to criminal justice or an intro to forensic science course, maybe like a law and evidence course so that you get some of that um, understanding like Fry and Dobert and, and the rules of evidence and what techniques you can use and why we have to be particular. Um, but that's also something that they can also train you on. Now, um, some graduate programs will focus on the forensics. So um, like I had a chemistry major who was an anthro minor. She's now pursuing forensic chemistry for her master's. Um, but a lot of places won't require that forensic element for you to get into the crime lab because they can always teach you, you know, this is the protocol we follow. As long as you know how to do the lab analysis, how to run that machine, we'll teach you how this all operates within that forensic sphere. And then for people who want to focus more on pathology, you're saying that's more of a medical school element? Yeah. Um, so you, to become a board certified forensic pathologist, it's going to require med school. So that's what five years of general med school training. And then I think it's a two year specialty for the pathology piece. So all doctors go through the same basic like med school element. And then if you're going to become an OBGYN or a, an ENT, um, then you'll go on for your specialized training um, to focus on, on that particular part of the body you want to focus on. Um, but yeah, that med school element, I'm like, mm, I don't want to treat patients. I just want to deal with the dead ones. <laughs> not. So I, I chose not to pursue that route because I just... I didn't want that responsibility of the living people and me having to make the choices for them. Um, other people, more power to them because they, they can. And um, so, yeah, for the, the pathology piece, um, getting a lot of dissection experience, anatomy and physiology in undergrad, they needed a lot of chemistry and physics, you know, to prepare themselves for the MCAT exam. Um, but a lot of med schools anymore seem to get away from doing actual human dissections. And that to me is kind of scary. Um, don't want my surgeon to, you know, look at me for the first living or living first real fleshy body that you're interacting with. 
and cutting open. It's a little scary. Um, I've done a lot of dissection work myself in, in, in my years, but the idea of trying to just use models or the virtual cadavers and that be my only training, that kind of scares me. Um, you, you can't be afraid of touching the dead. Um, that's the first step for my students, like in my Friends of Anthropology class, I'll, I'll make the offer available to them to go to the anatomy lab on campus. Even for folks thinking law enforcement, I was like, or uh, being an EMT, I'm like, you're gonna see far more nasty accident scenes than I will deal with nasty decomposed bodies. If you can't handle seeing a cadaver in a pretty sterile environment, what makes you think you're going to be able to walk up to that multi-vehicle accident and process that crime scene uh, or that accident scene? And um, so that's the first test for them to see if they can step foot in that lab to see it and then to actually put a hand, a gloved hand, you know, on that individual. And invariably there's always a cadaver that's flipped over and I'll ask someone, hey, can you give me a hand to flip it over, this body over so that students can see what's going on with this individual and to see who's willing to step forward to help me flip that body over. It's always interesting. It's oftentimes the military veterans who are like, yep, I'm here, I'm helping, you know, cause they don't want to see me struggle with the whole body by myself. Um, and to see that moment on people's faces cause I have to keep an eye on them to make sure no one's going to pass out on me. <laughs> and Luckily, no one has. The closest anyone had was this like six foot two, big, burly football player. And I was not gonna be catching him. I got a chair under his butt. I told him, you know, take a moment, then we'll get you out of here. Cause he didn't last five minutes. But um, that's my biggest fear of, okay, let me open this up. And just that look on the face, cause it's surreal. I mean, I remember for myself um, when I had gross anatomy, I'd already been working on forensic cases and processing decomposed human remains. And I figured I'm not gonna have any problems with gross anatomy. I got dealt with worse. But that first day when you gotta make your first cut and we were all forensic anthro um, students working on this particular cadaver and we kept passing around the, the scalpel like it was a hot potato. None of us wanted to make that first cut. We're like, you do it, you do it. We finally, all the females ganged up on the one guy and said, here, Paul, you do it. Um, but then, you know, as the semester went on, you know, just using our fingers to remove tissue and whatnot, and you're like, whatever, we, we get through it. But um, for us dealing with what we do, so much of forensic anthropology is disgusting, um, but we can't lose sight of the fact that this is a person who has loved ones wondering what happened. So even though we've got to do some very bizarre things as a means of our recovery and processing of the, of the body and an analysis of the bones, we can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, this is John Doe, Don Henry, whoever this, this person would be, because we'll often, you know, either know whom we're working on at the time we're working on them, or we'll find out shortly thereafter. It's like, have to do what we can to help the community and the families find closure and if a crime had been committed to help the police in, you know, sealing that case and, and, and if it has to go to trial and doing whatever we can to 
help seek justice for for that individual and so it's it's a tough balance because a lot of what we deal with is is nasty um whether it's part of our training and and dealing with the gross anatomy and making the connection that your dissection skills have made you more adept in the kitchen that's a scary connection to make when you're filleting your chicken um that it's such a, a mental assault and just an overall sensory assault and then just knowing how horrible people can be to each other um it takes a, a bit of strength to that and to be able to come out on the other side and still be okay mm. um, it's a tough adjustment so letting my students know it's like i struggled with my first few cases um i worked on my first case as a sophomore in college and we got that case on a monday and we were out in the field that wednesday we had another case with three bodies so i had four bodies after never having done this at all in one week and the second case involved children as well and that was tough um and so you know we spent a lot of time talking about mental health and in you know um, our society today that's a topic that needs to be more widely discussed anyway and letting students know that if you're struggling you're not the only one who is struggling and we've been there too and um being able to find how to talk about it and then work through the situations that we're dealing with um and in this line of work you're going to be dealing with a lot of horrid things that people either have done to themselves or someone else has done to them and um being able to come out through it being okay at the end of the day what kind of jobs can pathologists uh, anticipate once they leave school well, um, right now there's a, a definite need for pathologists, so that's good. Um, but working either with a hospital or with a, a crime lab, and sometimes those crime labs might be affiliated with the police of the area, or it might be affiliated with a medical examiner's office. Or um, when I was going to school up in Erie, multiple counties put together to be able to pay for a forensic pathologist because they're, they're not cheap. Um, so um, it could be almost anywhere in the country or if you wanna do international work as well. If you're in, interested in helping with um, investigations of atrocities, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Because um, we think of like physicians without borders as only helping the living, but they also help with recovery of the dead and identification of the victims and figuring out what had happened and collecting evidence if it's something that has to go to like an international criminal court. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities there. And that's also with the forensic anthropology as well, helping out with them. Um, so it's really where do you want to go with it? You can probably find a path there. It's a matter of what are you comfortable with doing, but there's a lot of opportunities out there. Um, got to work yourself up the ranks um, and also consider if you want to deal with the politics, say like in a medical examiner's office. So here for Southwestern PA, Allegheny County has an, an ME and that's an appointment. So if the county commissioner doesn't like you, you're out of there. Or if there's a new one voted in and there might be turnover. So there's that element that not everyone's always keen on or even just doing private work. So you can um, make your services available. Not every county has a pathologist 
And so they need to contract that work out. And so you could potentially be able to be like a privately, um, a private entity doing consulting work as needed for whomever might need assistance for autopsies. Yeah, just uh, assuming after watching, say, like CSI, for example, I, I assume every county, every city has their own CSI team. So is that not true? Um, no, because it, it's expensive. Um, so, you know, just like not all towns have their own police anymore. Uh, we put a large burden on the Pennsylvania State Police here in PA that, you know, they're, they're providing a lot of the general policing duties. And so we have a lot of regional crime scene offices. Um, so I think what our closest one for processing a lot of the evidence is in Greensburg. And um, so that's another opportunity for you to do forensic work. They have a lot of internship and trainee positions, you know, just to throw that out there. Um, but yeah, like Washington County, we have a coroner here. That's an, uh, an elected position and the, he's um, a funeral home director. So he's not qualified to do autopsies. So he contracts that work out. Um, but then the coroner's offices will have detectives associated with them but they're still making use of um, whichever jurisdiction had the deceased initially to help with collecting the evidence. Medical examiner's office in Allegheny County, um, they have death investigators and a very well kitted out crime lab. Um, Carl Williams up there has worked very hard on getting grant money to have a really solid lab up there. But if you're in a more rural area that might not see a lot of deaths, then you might have to send to like the state capital, if you will, to see whatever agencies that work there. Um, then we're a blend of coroner medical examiners here in Pennsylvania. Some states, I wanna say West Virginia has like a statewide medical examiner's office. Um, so it can really vary who's going to be doing that work. But um, that's why the FBI gets a lot of requests for assistance to or jurisdictions that need assistance for that forensic science element they might request help from the fbi to assist there as well so tell us about the difference between a coroner and a medical examiner so medical examiners there'll be some variation because uh, some it's just like an office manager um, but in many places, the medical examiner will be um, an appointed position and they're often a forensic pathologist. And they'll be overseeing um, cause and manner of death determinations. And um, they have claim of the dead and will decide if an autopsy is warranted. Um, so a lot more training typically again some of the offices are set up where they're more like a manager but most of them will be pathologists and coroners are elected positions um oftentimes funeral home directors because they're they're used to dealing with dead bodies most people don't want to um and oftentimes once you get that position it's, it's usually yours until you don't want it anymore um very rarely will you have opposition like it was pretty scandalous that like the green county coroner got voted out a few years ago, there's a new guy in there. Um, and then oftentimes it'll run in the family because just like the funeral homes tend to be inherited. Well, the coroner position, like in Somerset County, I had worked on a case with um, the father way back when, and now like his son's the county coroner. Um, and so there's not, you don't have to have any special qualifications other than getting on the ballot and getting voted, 
voted in. And then they have requirements for education. Um, so you go to a lot of workshops because they also have the power to determine cause and manner of death, but they will have to rely on others to help them in putting all those pieces together um, in order to make that determination. So that's why there's been a bit more of a push wherever possible to have more medical examiners because there is more of that education requirement. Um, but then that also means they get paid more. And, and so usually it's affiliated with larger cities or some places have gone statewide. So medical examiner, you have to go to school for essentially, right? Pathology. But the coroner, you know, just uh, move into a small town and have some friends vote for you, right? Is that? Yeah, like if you <laughs> wanted to be a county coroner for your county, you know, just get your your campaign together and make that push get on the ballot and and you conceivably could that's hmm. why i tell my students i'm like any of you could be coroner it's just a matter of being elected hmm. um and but that can be difficult uh, a challenge to do but it can be done uh, so you mentioned the fbi before have you ever worked with say the state borough of investigations um, now, generally for what I've personally been working on, I've worked with Allegheny County um, on a case and I've consulted for Fayette County on some cases. Um, I've provided some advice to the state police on cold cases when they're you know, re-examining it and saying, you know, what developments have occurred in forensic anthropology that might help us solve this case from the 1960s, for example. And um, I was pretty excited when, because my dad was a state trooper. And so he um, told me, he shared a newsletter once. He said, hey, look, here's a, a case that they used a forensic anthropologist and, and did some forensic DNA stuff. I'm like, yeah, I advised them on that case and they, they outsourced it. I'm like, that's fine. I'm, what she was able to do is not what I'm able to do. But it was nice to see my advice was able to help them find someone who could help them even more to, to find some resolution in that in that cold case. And it was a case my dad said he had recalled when he was first starting out as a trooper back in the late 60s. So um, that was pretty cool to see. From your perspective, being and studying in the field for so many years, have you noticed any maybe crime trends or like crimes that have gone out of style or crimes that have come into style? <laughs> Um, well, people are getting craftier, I think. Um, still making mistakes, but <laughs> thankfully, because um, we want them to be caught. But, you know, that they are more aware of um, how identifications are made. And so, you know, they, they try a bit harder to make it more difficult for forensic scientists to be able to put all the pieces back together and, um, you know, catch them in the end. It's amazing to see how far the science has gotten or the technology or the, it, it, it often comes down to, this sounds awful. So um, I always tell my students, like if you're going to bump somebody off, you know, you gotta keep it to yourself. <laughs> Criminals always seem to have, need to tell somebody else about what they've done. Um, so there's still, <laughs> human error comes into play, um, but they've, been trying harder, which means that we have to try harder to find new ways. Um, so I, I know that um, you and, and many of your followers are interested in like alternative 
um, burial strategies. And mm. so like alkaline hydrolysis yep. and more of the chemical cremation um, technique was something I first learned about two years ago, thanks to a mortuary sciences student who took my death and dying class. And um, I hadn't heard of it before. And so it got me thinking like, what ramifications could this have in forensic anthropology? since they're chemical reagents that you can get a hold of yourself as a regular citizen. So I'm thinking, trying to dispose of bodies. And my chemistry major looked into this for her honors thesis. And so she processed pig femurs um, doing the alkaline hydrolysis. Cause I was like, okay, what does it look like when it comes out after the treatment? You know, what would I still be able to say about the individual because um, fire cremations, you know, professionals, once they grind them up in the retort, yeah, it, you get fragments. But if it's somebody burning their ex-wife in the backyard, we're still going to be able to analyze stuff. And so I'll never forget the day she came in with one of her femurs and she's like, watch this. And she went, and she was able to crush it with her hands. I was like, oh my God, um, that there's still potential for what we can analyze there. Um, and so I'm thinking, okay, if you're trying, like our next experiment that we need to do is just doing it under regular pressure wherever you are in the world, in a barrel in the basement versus in a, a pressure cooker, you know, to help speed up the process. So that's my next thing. I need to find another chemistry major who's willing to hmm. take that experiment a bit further because we need to think of, okay, how can this implicate um, anybody but how is this going to, to challenge our ability to figure out what had happened um, as the end product of the um, alkaline hydrolysis? So um, people get craftier, but there's always idiots out there um, <laughs> who are going to leave a very messy trail. Um, I will always pay attention to the news about missing persons and thinking about, okay, where should they be looking for these bodies? And I just think of that, that, that couple and those two kids, the, uh, that um, Vallow lady. And um, when people started questioning, like, where are the children? I'm like, they're gone. And where are they? And them ultimately finding them on the property. Um, always have, it feels horrible. Always trying to question, like, what are people up to? And, where are they likely to, to stash bodies or what they're, they're likely to, to do to bodies. Hmm. Um, no, I guess perhaps we haven't heard about as many serial killers doing really nasty things to bodies lately. I haven't heard a lot about them. Hmm. Um, so either they've gotten really good and we haven't been connecting the dots <laughs> um, or there haven't been as many. That's one of the things I wonder about because mm -hmm. you know we, we don't have as many of those flashy or we just that better that forensic scientists are helping the police to catch them sooner yeah before they've racked up the body count um so that's that's been something every now and then um you'll hear somebody who's had more than a few bodies or there was the the guy up in toronto who was depositing body parts in planters around town oh. because he was a landscaper <laughs> And, and I thought, oh, they're going to have a hard time catching this person. But they did. They managed to catch him. And I think it was because one of his victims, potential victims, got away. But he was scattering body parts wherever he was doing his landscaping work. And, like, that smart 
ish. But um, yeah, and you don't usually think of that up north. Canadians are so friendly. I'm like, uh, there's there's crazy people everywhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, we haven't had as many serial killers. <laughs> well, there's that one guy. He was like what killing people with a hatchet or a machete or something. He I think he started in I want to say Connecticut, and then he came down to Pennsylvania. He was in like he was kind of close to me. He was he must have been I re, he was reported to have stolen car or something maybe like forty five minutes away, and then he took that car, and police still couldn't find him, still couldn't track him. And then they ended up finding him after killing, like, uh, ooh, I don't even, like, probably upwards of, like, ten people, I, I believe. They found him in Maryland, and they got him. I'm like, oh, jeez. Oh, was that that uh, guy in his early 20s? Yeah, yeah, he okay. was a young kid, yeah. Yeah, and he just went off yeah. and, and on a spree. Yep. Um, but and nobody like a Hannibal Lecter. Oh, yeah, those are yeah. They wised up with all these TV shows, I guess. I don't because <laughs> people are like, oh, we're training them to be better killers. I'm like, with what glimpses they're seeing on TV. <laughs> I mean, there was one guy who, I want to say, it was in the state of Florida. Um, he killed his wife, and like her job, she was an attractive lady, and she would be hired out for events like you could eat sushi off her body. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, as you do. And he killed her, and he pulled out her teeth, chopped off her hands, and figured he'd be good to go. Oh, oh. Yeah, because fingerprints, teeth, primary base of each other. He forgot her breasts were fake, and the implants have serial numbers on them. Oh so they God. had an easy time figuring out it was her because of her implants. Um, so there's always something. There's always something we can use. <laughs> I, I tell my husband, it's like I, I, I'm a bit of a klutz, so I've, I've had a lot of X-rays, CAT scans. So I said, well, no, I've got enough little weird quirks in in my body. I'm like, you can use that for identification. Mm, just mm. I have these, or my frontal sinus pattern, or my first bone in my neck. It never formed the whole way. I'm like, that's a quirk. Oh. I pointed that out to my doctor, and he's like, what? I was like, oh, it's an incomplete posterior neural arch on my atlas. And he's like, what? I'm like, I would have scored myself for my dissertation, because I looked at those little quirks for my dissertation. I'm like, I would have scored myself. Um, but yeah, there's always something, and always trying to find something new that we can use, or how far DNA analysis has come. Um, you know, the like trace DNA, that you just barely touch something from your fingerprints that they might have something that they can salvage for identification. It's just amazing to think about it. It's come that far. I did DNA analysis for my master's thesis, and that was 20 years ago. It's scary to think it's been that long, but I just think of what I was capable of doing then. It wasn't a whole lot looking at nuclear DNA from archaeological bone um, to see what they can do now. It's just astounding. Um, or the different ways that we can utilize the technology with the with drones and things like that to help with detecting graves. So um, like one of the techniques I've been hoping we can get one of these setups at my school that um, infrared cameras because graves will heat up and then cool off at different rates compared to undisturbed soil. So we could use that to help detect graves 
as well as features at archaeological sites. Um, there's other applications for that as well. And um, but just to think of how we can use that rather than just walking on the ground and looking for <laughs> some sort of indication that there's a body here because buried bodies are not always easy to find. And if we can use the technology to help us and to have a drone that you can just pop up there really quick and get immediate results, that'll help speed things up so much more quickly that bodies are less likely to go undetected. What would you say are the most common traits that for forensic anthropologists look for? It's what the, like you mentioned before, the, the fingertips, maybe some dental records, but you also mentioned um, what, like little unique bone quarks and stuff mm -hmm. and so, maybe even like tattoos and stuff like that. If, if they preserve, um, you can definitely in a sense a lot of people have tattoos now and very individualizing tattoos that you know they won't themselves necessarily be um conclusive to identify someone but at least says well it's consistent so we're on the right path because you could always try to mimic somebody's artwork but um it's a way of having a probable match to know that you're on the right path for that so um you know when we're dealing with mummified tissue um, you know, you can potentially rehydrate fingertips for them to be able to roll them for, for prints. Or if um, it's in the earlier stages of decomposition and the skin's starting to slip off, the epidermis will slip off, um, that it can peel off like a glove. And one of my friends, because her hand was smaller, had to slip it on so that they could roll it for prints. Um, I prefer more advanced decomp because I'm like, oh, that's gross. Um, but really, when we're called in, oftentimes I feel like I'm sort of the middleman because I'll say, Ooh, we need to make sure, you know, you need a forensic botanist because they can look at those roots that are growing through the skeleton and estimate, you know, how quickly does that plant grow? How long has that plant been growing through our bones? They can help give you a time frame or to call in the entomologist to help out with analyzing the insects. Um, because the bugs are good for more than just figuring out how long the body's been there. And um, when it comes down to just looking at the bones themselves, uh, obviously we're going to want to look for um, features that we can use for more positive identification. And typically the teeth will be the main thing. Um, a forensic dentist will be called in to make that final call. But depending on the case, we had one in the state of Indiana where it was a serial killer site actually. And the guy had tried covering up everything, burying, uh, well, he burned and then he drained his pool to flush stuff everywhere. And have they had to recover everything and then trying to sort out those teeth to figure out how many individuals are represented in. And then to help the dentist be ready to go in to make his ID because dentists aren't used to just having a pile of teeth. Um, that's one of the things I like working on. I actually, I have over 800 teeth sitting in this room with me right now. Nice. Um, and trying to sort those out into which particular tooth is it and could they belong to the same individual? Because it's so much quicker to make a dental ID than waiting for the DNA to confirm. And if, um, so we don't have dental records to run with, but, um, maybe some other type of medical imaging was done than being able to match up um, some unique structures within the um, skeletal anatomy to help with the identification process. 
So one of the um, primary areas that we can use is the frontal sinus right up in here. It um, is pretty individualizing right now. It's pretty much comparable to what we can do for fingerprints, but most people haven't had their heads x-rayed as much as they might need it. Um, and so if we don't have an, an anti-mortem uh, image or one while the person was alive to compare with our dead one, then it's not gonna matter. Um, but it's not everybody has as many lobes on it. Some people, they extend up really far or wide. Mine are puny for as many sinus headaches as I get. I thought I was gonna have massive ones and they're really small. Um, so that was not fun. Um, I was disappointed in myself. Um, but then I had like, when I had my wisdom teeth extracted, I had really curved roots. And so I still have root fragments in my jaw. They're still there. So I remind my husband, like we can use that for positive ID if needed. Um, Cause you never know, or interesting fractures. Um, that can be, there was one case I worked on where the two boys were similar in age. They hadn't been to the dentist yet. They were very young, but the one had broken his leg the year before. And so we were able to use those x-rays to figure out which boy was which to help out there. So when the parents buried them, they were able to bury them with their name and know which boy was which. Um, so it's keeping yourself open to any option you see. Um, an injury that somebody had that might have caused them to walk in a way that others would have noticed was different. Um, so if the police need to do an appeal to say that if anybody has any leads on a neighbor who they haven't seen in a while, who would have walked with a noticeable limp or, you know, favored an arm, you know, and one arm didn't work, that might be enough for them to go, hey, you know what, I haven't seen that old guy down the street for a while to help spur on um, the investigation to give them some leads. So we'll always look for those little tidbits that are unique to that individual that might help trigger somebody's memory to go, yeah, I remember, yeah, that neighbor, I haven't seen them in a while and they had this going on. Um, or activity indicators. Um, this is where even though we have to know our bones really well, we need to know our muscles because our muscles attach to the bones. And if you use certain muscles on a regular basis, they get bigger, the bones have to grow in certain ways to accommodate those more developed muscles. So we might be able to say, well, this person you know, sprained their ankle a lot and had a lot of ankle instability. Um, that, that comes in handy, especially with recreating um, activity in archeological populations too. Um, and I always think of, again, I'm accident prone. What have I done to myself? Um, and trying to think of what, how's that gonna show up on the skeleton? What might I see in somebody else's skeleton? Um, or my students will share horror stories of their personal accidents that they've, they've experienced and bring in pictures and x-rays and I'll just like, oh my. <laughs> Especially before I had my son and now that I've had my son and the, the male students come in like, oh, I did this and that and I'm like, oh. <laughs> what am I in for with my nine-year-old um, and trying to think going forward how is this impacting their skeleton how might that look because um, again that might be something that we can use going forward because again that variation we have a lot of weird things that can go on with our bodies you know, every skeleton has generally the same basic parts um, there's going to be some variation and then there's going to be some extra quirks and sometimes if you're not used to seeing those extra quirks, they might be normal developmental things, like holes where you might not expect there to be holes. 
that might be misinterpreted for healed gunshot wounds, for example. Um, like there's a, a hole that sometimes people have on their breastbone. You wouldn't notice it in yourself living because there would be membrane over it. Or the holes um, in the, the back area, the head, usually they're for blood vessels typically. Um, I have seen images of ones that were like, they look like bowling ball holes. They're that big. Mm. Most people, they're small. Um, but yeah, you'd see that and go, oh, he must have had cranial surgery. I'm like, no, based on that location, they're just in very large parietal foramina. It's normal <laughs> variation. Um, it's important to know that because otherwise you would think healed gunshot wound or cranial surgery. Um, like, no, it's variation. But it's cool stuff that might show up on x-rays or CAT scans. Mm -hmm. So do you have any advice, say like, uh, I do have some x-rays or some sort of uh, images of, say like a unique kind of uh, leg bone, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have any advice as to like how to document that just in case, like worst case scenario? Um, yeah, making sure family members are aware of like, hey, you know what, um, I've got a third trochanter on my right femur, because that's mm. a developmental quirk. Tell me, how can high school students begin to learn a little bit more about forensics and really get a better grip on, say, if they want to pursue a forensics career, how, how should they get started? Well, one of the things that they can do is just talk with their high school guidance counselors. Um, had a lot of students through the years tell me that like the person who they had the best rapport with in high school was that guidance counselor. I can't say the same, but you know maybe they're a better breed now <laughs> nowadays than they were back in the 90s. But um, and talk to them about doing job shadows or during the career fairs. There's invariably going to be a police officer or a state trooper, you know, who's there for the career fair and talk to them and ask how did you find yourself, you know, in the role that you're in. What can I start doing to put myself in position to have that type of career? Or even just go down to your local police department and um, talk to the, the officers there. Um, and it could be that, you know, independent of the school that you might be able to hang out with them for the day or get a tour of the station and learn a little bit more and pick their brain a bit. Um, a lot of high schools already set up to do tours at their local universities or even at, say, the medical examiner's office or the coroner's um, facility. Talk to them um, and just pick their brains because it could be that um, they might come at it from different directions, you know, talk to multiple individuals. And um, you might find that, if, especially depending on the area that you're in, it might be really easy to start um this conversation and finding schools that you might be interested in going to or just reaching out to the faculty um or if depending on the school they, they there's always a variety of clubs that you could reach out to the clubs at those universities to talk to the students there about what advice they have and there's so many websites and forums and um, discussion boards and listservs out there that you can start getting on board with them um, with these different interest groups and you'll find other lay people as well as professionals to, to chat with in, in various stages of their careers to, to find out how did they get where they are today and what might you be able to do to reach that same place or maybe even go further um, 
and so like not everybody would be happy doing forensic anthropology um, on a as needed basis for example like a lot of us teach at universities and then do forensic cases as they come up on the side others would rather be doing forensic cases all the time or you might see yourself helping more with the military and recovering remains of soldiers who are missing in action. And so th there's a different aspect that works for different personalities. So um, some of the people I went to school with are working with the military to go out to Southeast Asia and living in the jungle and working with nasty insects and eating interesting things. That's not the life for me. <laughs> Um, I, I like teaching. I enjoy it. I love working with students. Other of my friends would not not be up for that. Um, and I know others who are, are doing nothing but casework. But I enjoy the, the education aspect. And it's good to find out, well, what are these different avenues that we can pursue? As an undergrad, I thought I wanted to work at the Smithsonian and consult with the FBI. I just want to work at the museum. But then I came to realize with all the workshops I helped at that I enjoyed the teaching element. And then as I went on to grad school and was a teaching assistant, again, still growing that, that, that teaching aspect. Um, so I'm where I'm content being. And, and yeah. so still getting to consult every now and then, um, getting to do archeological work and then and the teaching element and helping those students find that path for them because um, it's not a cookie cutter one path fits all uh, I've had students going in all sorts of directions um, some are in circles it helped to straighten them out too so they're heading in one consistent direction um, but it's just talk to people and um, if you email them once and you don't hear from them try again give, give them a while maybe they're really busy um, but you know just try again or reach out to someone else but just throw it out there because um, I know I write novels to people when they write me and say, hey, how can I get into forensic anthropology? Even if they don't end up coming to study with me, that's fine. At least I've given them some advice so that they can go forward and figure out what it is that they want to do. Um, but there's a lot of different professionals out there. You can look, some of them have their membership directories readily available on their websites. Or um, a lot of them will also have um, information for, you know, having a career in this discipline. Um, so like the American Academy of Forensic Sciences has different pages for the different disciplines they represent. And so they'll already have some helpful advice available for folks there as well. So one can go to school for forensics, but if you're working crime scenes, do you also have to be trained by local law enforcement or the police? Maybe like going to a police academy? Well, you wouldn't have to go into the police academy. Um, so like with the way it's set up with the Pennsylvania State Police, you could go to the, you know, the State Police Academy to be trained to be a trooper. Um, and many of the troopers will be trained say like with the crime scene photography my dad was an ac accident reconstruction expert um, and so they'll have those basics but when they need like the people in the lab those are civilian positions so it depends on the force that you're interested in affiliating yourself with that for some you might have to be a police officer to process 
Others might have dedicated crime scene response teams like the FBI has. Um, one of our alumni who did a guest lecture for me, she works for DC Metro Police. She's not an officer. She's a crime scene tech and she is busy. And so you also have to think then, how busy do you wanna be? And the potential risk to yourself, depending on the, like she said, sometimes it can be a little risky depending on where exactly they're at in DC. I'm sure it's the same in any major metropolitan um, area. For forensic anthropology, a lot of our bodies are out in the woods. So our biggest concern would be hunters mistaking us for deer. Um, but yeah, to think of that element. So it really depends on where you see yourself. Do you want to be a police officer too? Have the powers of arrest? CSI kind of gave the wrong impression there with their crime scene and their lab people doing suspect interviews <laughs> or with Bones and Bones being involved in interviews. No, we don't do that. Um, if there's something extra we need, we tell the investigating detective or like the medical examiner's office, like find out this info for us. We're not gonna go question um, the suspects ourselves. Um, so it's a matter of really what element of it you like to see yourself. What uh, requirements are there for a, say a CSI detective? Well, and we, when I used to also advise for the criminal justice students, oftentimes I'd have freshmen saying, I wanna be a detective, but I don't wanna be a police officer. I said, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you have to earn your stripes. So you have to start off as a grunt, you know, low level, lowest ranking police officer and earn your way. Mm. Up. Uh, so the detectives, they have to go to police academy then? Mm -hmm. yep. Oh, okay. To the academy, they would have been a cop on the beat. And then either through additional training that they might have done or just through their hard effort and whatever the promotion strategy is that department then you could work yourself up to it but it's not something straight out of school you're going to slip into that type of position oh, okay and that's kind of like a ladder that you have to climb yourself there's not necessarily like oh you leave school with a degree and you're instantly qualified it you know kind of like with some of the it, there it might help to maybe jump a few steps Right. But still, you, you've got to show that you can do it. Right. And they need to be able to see that you can do it. So it might help to speed up the process, but there's still, you know, certain benchmarks that you have to reach mm. in order to be thrown out there. Because you can have as much school book classroom training as possible. Same with, like, skeletal analysis. You, you've studied all these bones in your little lab, and then you go out into the field, it's like, oh, my. Um, you need to to be exposed to a lot more to see how these processes work, as well as the nuances of navigating that political climate as mm. well. Um, and so the there's politics; it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can't just grab graduate from college and boom, you're a detective. Um, and then some places will have those death investigators. Mm. Um, so like my student who she's been graduated now in three four years now she's a certified death investigator um she's she's not a cop she's a civilian um but that was additional training that she had to earn then i don't know what kind of testing is involved as well to show your content knowledge but you're going to have to um, earn your stripes definitely oh. i'll never forget this 
I was uh, I was hiking up a mountain for uh, to take some photos, like landscape photos, because there's a beautiful reservoir on the top of the mountain. So I'm climbing. I'm I hike up it, and I'm hiking down, and I see this this trail of fur, right? And I'm like, oh, that's. I wonder what's at the end of that trail. You know, <laughs> like what could that be? <laughs> So then I, I follow it. I have to like go up a, over a tree. It was a down tree. And then, then I find a bone and I'm like, ooh, 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 I'm getting close. So then I keep going and keep going. And I see just the full spinal column laid out. And obviously in this instance, it was a deer that was attacked and eaten by scavengers or uh, big cats, maybe. I don't know. But um, possibly, I mean, some people... I think game game commission says that here in Northeast Pennsylvania, there are no mountain lions, but I've have seen some Facebook photos of some mountain lions around anyway. Anyway. So what I'm getting at is, uh, do you have any tips like without visually comparing? So for the listening audience, do you have any tips as to how to tell if a bone is, is an animal or if it's human? So, um, Essentially, if you know it's an upper arm bone, it, it helps if you have some basic, um, it, it depends on the parts of the body that you're finding. So say if it's the skull, just think of where's the hole where the spinal cord is exiting the brain? Is it more in the back of the head? Is it directly underneath the head? Um, does it look like it's shaped anything like your own, essentially? Um, look at the teeth the teeth are a, a really good indicator um like even though our teeth are are meant more for being omnivores so processing both plant and meat matter they don't look what we see in deer they don't look like sheep horse cow herbivores versus dog cat and most of us will have some experience with our pets or pets of our friends um what do those teeth look like do they look anything like what's in your mouth um if yes, then perhaps it's human. Um, I mean, I still have students who will send me photographs and say, did I come across a human? Should I call the police? And invariably, most of the cases we get asked about, it's non-human. So most of the time it won't be human. Um, but if, if it's a long bone, and, and most of the long bones will start off in multiple parts. This is true for any other mammal. If it looks like it's got all its parts and none of the ends look like English muffin texture, <laughs> then probably the ends of the bones are fused on there. If it um, looks really huge, it's probably not human. If it looks really tiny, probably not human. Um, where we can get thrown off are with child remains um, because their, their bones can look really odd, especially really young ones. So. Um, you know, if somebody's chihuahua was wearing a sweater, ran off into the woods and died, and you come across this very small skeleton with this very bulbous head, if the muzzle isn't there and you don't see those teeth, you might think at first, oh my god, it's a dead baby, it's in this sweater. Um, that can throw people off, um, but then you could see where the neck attaches towards the back of the head. Um, and so for us, um, we have a short and broad pelvis. Um, other animals, other mammals, like quadrupeds, your dogs, cats, cows, they're elongated, they're stretched out. Um, so if it's, uh, ours is often described as being cup-like or bowl-like. Um, if 
you are dealing with feet. Do you see claws? Do you see hooves that they might preserve? Um, are foot bones, you know, do you have enough there for five toes? Um, does it look like one of them is going to be much bigger compared to the others? Our big toe, those bones are much thicker compared to the other ones. Um, or looking at the hand bones, again, are there claws? Um, does it look like um, there's a, a short little thumb-like appendage on them? Now, you know, uh, some other animals will have, you know, I think of squirrels, they can have that as well. But um, thinking of the size of it, again, if it looks like all the little pieces for it are fused together, but it looks like it might be squirrel size, then it might be a squirrel. Um, but more often than not, what will be confused with human around here in Pennsylvania is usually deer, on occasion bear. Um, if you're in farm area, it might be sheep, goat. Um, but yeah, the bulk of the forensic anthropology cases are not human. So more than likely what you encountered was not human. Um, but you know, every, I, I'm always looking, every time I'm on hunt, uh, hunting, I don't hunt, hiking, I'm always looking for, a, that looks like a good place to stash a body. Is there one? <laughs> Um, or if I smell something rotting, I'm like, I gotta go look to see if it's human. Um, but yeah, most of the time it won't be. The teeth are, are one of the easiest things. Um, if you hunt, you already have a basic feel more than likely of um, some of the non-human skeletal anatomy, um, especially if you process your own game. Um, so you can go with kind of your gut there. People who grow up on farms are used to seeing dead things they're you know dead critters wherever you haul off the carcass um they'll generally have a working appreciation for what might be human mm. um, but otherwise if you just have a think of your um typical halloween skeleton or the the basic shape of the bones that we have um if it looks like an upper arm bone the humerus there's going to be telltale features that you can still even if you've never seen a cat skeleton and I plunk one in front of you and you know what a human humerus looks like, you can pick out the cat one. There'll be hallmarks of the, the bones that um, match up across mammal species. Uh, it gets a little squirrely with marine mammals, but if we're looking at terrestrial mammals, there's gonna be features that can help us to figure out what bone it is, even if you're not used to dealing with that skeleton. Um, but there's a lot of resources out there. If you're out hiking, you know, you can quickly, always go to is deer more than anything else that's what i've had to tell people it's deer um just you know look up deer bones and there's gonna be tons of pictures online that you can quickly make a comparison uh with what you're seeing there to help you with should i call the cops do i need to mark this spot and hike back to where i get reception um but yeah if you do a quick look online it helps a lot um or if you need to to take pictures make sure you put something there for scale because um, depending on the way you, you take a photograph, I'm like, oh, what am I looking at? Okay, I need something for scale here um, that'll help out if they need to make a quick assessment on whether or not they need to return to that scene where you were just hiking. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's amazing what's out there online that can help you with that. Oh yeah, I was watching a uh, forensic anthropology talk and it was funny because the speaker she was saying how she gets calls all the time from police sending her photos of what look like mummified hands, but they're actually seal flippers washing up on shore. 
and and the cop is like, oh, okay, okay, cool. I'll just throw it back in the ocean. She's like, no, don't, no, because it'll get rewashed up on shore, and she'll get the same call, same, same everything. Yeah, I thought you were gonna say bear paws, because that's oh. usually what you'll get here in PA, especially people have been poaching. And oh. Claws, and they chop off the claws and they ditch the rest of the paw, um, especially if it's young bear. People are like, oh my God, it's human. Um, what we'll see on like the heads of the metacarpals, it's not a smooth dome. It has a ridge in the center. Um, so that helps. There's other features too, but that's the easiest one. But yeah, for us here in Pennsylvania, thinking it's a, a hand or a foot, it's probably bear. Mm. But steel flippers. Yeah, <laughs> I guess if you're on the coast, that yep. would be wrong. <laughs> There's this trend on TikTok, right? It's like, oh, is it, here's how to tell if it's a stone or if it's a bone. And all these kids, right, they go and they they get the stone and they lick it. And apparently, if it's a, if it's a stone, it's going to fall. But if it's a bone, it's going to stick to your tongue. <laughs> yeah, Don't do that at home, kids. <laughs> Don't know where that's been. What's yeah. growing on? Um, but it makes me think of Neil Haskell, who's a forensic entomologist. He's like, is it a fly puparium or oh. mouse feces? <laughs> He's like, put it in your mouth. If it uh, melts, it was mouse feces. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's generally the texture. You're right. going to know the feel of it. And that, again, is where it comes in handy, having handled a lot of material. Because um, like with the human versus non-human, when the bones are intact, it's it's easy to tell if it's human or not. But when you're dealing with fragments, it can get harder. And um, I'll, my students will be like, oh my God, they watch me going through stuff and sometimes I'm not even looking at it, I just touch it. Cause there's a textural and a weight difference that I'm like, that's not human. Um, and that's just from handling thousands of bone fragments over the years. Cause I've done a lot of faunal analysis too. So it's like, you just pick up on that, that feel mm. but then if things are burnt that ups the the challenge even more because um if it's been burned to where it's calcined or whitened it's down to just the mineral and so the texture changes and um, as bone burns it shrinks and it warps and so it makes it even more challenging to figure out what are you looking at and if it was a structural fire and you have everything, like everything in this room, if it were to burn up with me, how it sticks to the bone or what it looks like when it's burned can make it really challenging. I like that. That sounds awful. <laughs> it's an interesting challenge to, mm -hmm. to work on, um, but it you can still do so much with it too. But it's again, it's what have you been exposed to? What else have you worked on? to be able to make those distinctions. It's just many hours in the lab, many mm. hours. Uh, are there any quick resources that people can go and either watch or you know download to really get just the, the basic understanding of bones and osteology? Uh, one of the um, books that I, I use a lot for my students is called The Human Bone Manual. Um, it's by Tim White. And that's a great reference, um, fabulous photos. They're black and white photos, but to show you every um, aspect of a bone and identifying features, what they're typically confused with. Um, and 
when you're out hiking, look for things. You know, there's so many bones out there, just out there in the woods that you can look at and start to see what does that look like and what this environment does to the bone, um, whether it's been submerged in water or if it's been exposed to bright sun constantly, um, or has it been burned? Um, and just look at a lot of things. Uh, go to museums, you know, uh, whatever might be open around you and see what they have on exhibit and look at. And volunteer opportunities, that's another key thing. Um, if you have folks who are interested in um, doing work with skeletal material, see what museums are nearby, um, what kind of collections they have and what their volunteer opportunities are. Because it isn't just volunteering in the exhibits themselves, but you might be able to volunteer with all the stuff that isn't on exhibit and to help the curators and collections managers in making order of the collections they have. So many museums have so much work that needs to be done and not enough staffing. Um, and they're trying to bring their collections management up to the 21st century. Because some are still operating in the 19th century. <laughs> and um, so they need help. And if you're willing to volunteer, who knows what you'll get to see because really all the cool stuff is in storage. It's not on exhibit. That's just a fraction of what they have, what's on exhibit. So volunteer. Um, the stuff I got to see when I did my dissertation research in London at the Natural History Museum there, it was so cool walking through the stacks of just all this history that, and the fossils and things that you got to see that who knows if anyone else would ever get to see them mm. if they'd ever go on exhibit. So, you know, if you can get some help in there, or even just working with um, the local historical societies too, who knows what they have in their collections. And that's another way to maybe see a different aspect of what you'd be able to do. Mm. Uh, what's your take on forensic research facilities, AKA body farms? Uh, we need them and we need more of them. Mm. Um, because every, you know, we have our climactic differences. And that's one of the big things that these body farms help us with is understanding what factors influence how quickly a body is going to decompose. And when you're working with different bodies, you know, if you have a very overweight individual versus a skinny little person, um, you know, how quickly are they going to decompose? That's going to throw off our ability to figure out time since death. Um, and that's one of the things where I tell my students where it's kind of an art being able to figure out how long has it been when we are dealing with just strips of flesh decomposition fluid and odor with our bone and having these facilities where we can control as many variables as we can going from a known of what the person had looked like the day they were received versus the setting you put them in and being able to observe them over time it's critical um, one of the things that we've seen for forensic science lately is, you know, it's been under the microscope on our ability to be accurate, you know, to measure our error, to be consistent and reliable. And I tell my students that for forensic anthropology, where we're going to catch the most flack is our ability to, to determine time since death and our interpretation of trauma events, not just that it's sharp force trauma, but what position was the body in and what were they doing at the time they received that trauma. And so we need people in different uh, people, these body farms, we need them in different settings. 
because um, the first one down in Tennessee, Knoxville, it's a very different environment. You know, hotter summers, not as cold winters compared to us here in Pennsylvania. So they're going to see a different decomp rate. Um, one of my students is now working on her master's at uh, Texas State in San Marcos, and they have a facility there. And so you figure Texas, <laughs> it's hot. Um, and so they're going to break down, you know, it's going to decompose so much more quickly than it would here. Uh, there's one that's in Colorado. Um, the one in Boston, I'm not sure if they, they've been able to sustain it because there was a lot of flack that they received about mm -hmm. that. Um, but we need more. Um, and again, to help us to better understand what's going on. Otherwise, we're just learning it through the cases that we work on and um, our experience level versus those more controlled, regulated experiments, if you will. Because mm. um, otherwise, yeah, we deserve to be questioned more difficultly on the stand regarding that um, because that can make or break you know, somebody's alibi, um, especially if we're looking at um, a year or close to a year out. Um, one of the cases I worked on, they didn't have me in the field, they only had me analyze the remains in the lab. And they wanted me to provide them with a post-mortem interval. And I said, well, that's gonna be severely limited because I have no knowledge on the setting this body came from other than it was the person had been outside. Mm. But I don't know the amount of vegetation, sun exposure, um, water that might flush through the area um, so it's like I, I need more to be able to do more for you and more controlled situations we can have the better um, and we had thought about having one at our university we actually had an agreement for access to land um, almost an hour away from the school but that got axed it's like been put on the shelf um, I don't know if that'll ever happen people think it's fascinating but they don't want it anywhere near them uh. so um you need a more rural area to be able to do this mm. and so i like the dcnr has a predator cam so i'll often watch that they'll stake out deer and it has a, a camera that'll take pictures when something's there to see who's coming in and scavenging on those remains mm. and think of what damage are they doing to the bone that could mimic trauma from a weapon or how it might cover up the um, trauma that we might see. Um, that's pretty cool research. I'd love to get a hand on those bones. Like mm. I might recommend that for a student for grad school work down the road, like work with the you know, Department of Natural Resources and their predator cam setups. But, um, but we need more of those facilities. We're fortunate in the US. We have sort of led the way in forensic anthropology most other forensic sciences started outside the U.S. This is one of the ones where it has really grown in the U.S. And it's mainly because of our tie with the military and not wanting to leave any soldier behind. And so that has really pushed our ability to identify people from their skeletal remains. So we are more open towards that type of research to help with that identification. But the idea of yeah, decomposing bodies out at a facility, grosses out a lot of people, maybe intrigues some people, maybe a little too much. Um, but I know there's a strong interest because when, I, I probably get about five or six inquiries a year, people saying that 
you know, they're interested in donating their body um, for you know, scientific research. They'd like to go to a facility where they can you know, become one with nature. And so I'll let them know, well, we don't have that capability right now, but here are some other places to consider. Um, so there's, there's interest, whether it's school teachers wanting to be able to teach beyond the grave, or I had one gentleman who was um, in the prison system and had been there for some time. And he said, I've already been too much of a burden to my family in the state. I want to give something back. And if this is the way I can do it, this is how I want to do it. And so I let him know about your know, body donation process. Um, but we need more and we need more in different settings around the world. Um, and because too many places try to make use of the research here, I'm like, well, it works here, but it might not work in your country. So we need something for where you are. Um, and it's getting there. You know, mm. It's just winning people over and having secure facilities and so continuing on research. What would you say is the, the number one factor, or I guess maybe the top five factors or however many, that are preventing more body farms from popping up? Health reasons, uh, concerns okay. about spread of disease, um, mm. kind of hearkening back to um, centuries ago where people associated bad odors with disease, like malaria is malaria, bad air, you know, foul smells lead to disease. That's why the Brits ended up closing cemeteries in London, you know, or burials within the churches because they were afraid if you're smelling these bodies decomposing within the structure, you're going to get sick. Well, you might throw up, but you won't get an infectious disease. But um, they're concerned, well, if that person had a disease, then, you know, it's going to get in our drinking water, it's going to get in the soil. Um, and so there's that concern. Or just some folks don't want to see the dead being treated that way. They think it's disrespectful. Even if the person themselves chose to be donated to science for this purpose, the neighbors might disagree because it goes against their ideology mm -hmm. um, and they don't want the body to be treated that way. Um, so it's just in this day and age where a lot of people seem to be anti-science, it might be a bit hard to, to win them over um, to the fact that you know we're we're not accepting plague victims, you know, like the, the disease risk to ourselves working on decomposing bodies is mainly from whatever bacteria mold might grow on the body, but the person, whatever they might have had, isn't a risk factor for us as they're decomposing. Mm -hmm. um, so that risk is minimal and deer die in the drinking water supply systems anyway. And like, you're fine. That's why we have filtration systems and water treatment plants. Um, if they learned out where the blood went from the funeral home next door, they'd probably freak out. Um, <laughs> you know? um, it's, I think it's the visual, too many horror films, and people just think it's nasty. Um, and it's just, if they learn more about the process and the rationale for it and appreciate the fact that um, a lot of people want to donate their body to go this way, um, it's just like the, the difficulties we have on winning folks over to have the more natural green cemeteries. Like we have one in Verona. I don't know if that's near Pittsburgh here. Um, how much of a fight do they have to get that set up? Um, and so it's just education, um, educating people, them being open to something other than the standard traditional way that they've been raised to think this is what we should be doing with the dead. Um, 
but we need more opportunity for research. Um, and oftentimes the bodies after they've decomposed, you know, if the family members want them back, they'll get them, you know, if they want them cremated, they'll get cremated. Many times they'll donate them to that university that the facility is affiliated with, which we need more of because um, a lot of the uh, skeletal collections that are being used for research are based off of individuals who died in the early 20th century and there's skeletons aren't fixed like they they'll change with environmental conditions your diet your health there will be changes um, stature in the way that we calculate how tall someone is lifestyle changes are going to impact how quickly the bones break down with aging um, the fact that um, puberty hits a lot earlier now than it used to. I always embarrass my students to talk about menstruation, heaven forbid. And um, what impact is that going to have on growth attainment, how soon the ends of bones are going to fuse together, especially for females, that could throw off our age estimation. Um, dietary changes in teeth and tooth development. I was like, we need to work on more modern populations for forensic standards, and we need more representation of the diverse population of the United States, because most of our um, comparative collections are either of European Americans or African Americans, and there's more to the US than that. And so um, we can't just blindly take a technique that was developed on one group and hope that it's going to be accurate on another without it being tested and so we need a lot more testing or other countries might use standards that were developed here on their population I'm like it's not necessarily going to be accurate for them and we need to get a, um, a handle on that as well so um, I, I encourage my students to pursue more with looking at um, medical imaging um, but we need because you know, it sounds awful, okay, in the, in the 19th century, biological anthropologists, term lightly applied, had no qualms with going, ooh, that person has a cool skull. When they're dead, I'm just gonna take it. Um, nowadays, we don't do that. But it'd be fantastic if we could get a CAT scan, you know, mm -hmm. and with 3D printing available, I would love a copy of my own skull. That would be cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then that's another way that we can create expanded um, opportunities for research. If we can CAT scan living people and make 3D um, hard copies and then also work with more of the images that you can actually do measurements on the, the computer accurately, that will help us to expand our available uh, reference material for developing um, new techniques or um, testing out to see if a, an existing technique works on a different population. But that's going to be expensive. But I think that's where we need to go. Because um, otherwise we are left with a convenient sample. We deal with whatever dead we have our hands on, right? But if we want to be able to get a more representative sample, then we need to start getting more images of living individuals. and. Again, that's going to be expensive, but I think that's where the future needs to go for us to have more to work with um, to improve our forensic techniques. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that sounds really good for the future. Are there any other kind of maybe trends like that? Or what, what can we expect 
in future developments, like the evolution of forensic science in the future? Um, better accuracy, maybe quicker results in, in some techniques. Um, one of the big things with um, what we do skeletally, we're very limited on what we can do with remains of children. Part of that is due to the fact that we don't have a lot of forensic related child material to work with. Um, and this is where the CAT scans could really help us. Because mm. um, otherwise we're testing a lot on um, documented skeletal collections, like the one I used for my dissertation dates to the 1700s to early 1800s. Can you apply those to kids of the 21st century? Not necessarily. So oftentimes when we're just looking at naked bone, we can age them. We can age them. You want to know what sex that individual is? I'll, you have to do DNA testing. Um, child skeletons are changing so much that maybe dentally we can get some indicators on ancestry of the individual, but otherwise you can't really rely on the craniofacial indicators that we look for. And then also, the, we, we look at ancestry and where did your people come from geographically and what physical features have been affiliated with that general area. But with um, breakdown of social barriers and geographical barriers, you can have babies with whomever you want. And so we see blending of features. And so ancestry estimation is one of those things that feels kind of taboo but the police still expect, you know, is this someone African-American or European descent? We don't have a good enough gauge on um, admixture because uh, there, there's no clear formula of if your father was this and your mother was this or your grandfather was that and your grandmother was this, what physical features will you have? Just because your bones look one way, it also doesn't control like what your skin will look like, your hair texture, how you self-identify. Um, and so that's another area where we face a lot of challenge where eventually I think stopped even trying, you know, mm. especially as you know gene flow continues and you know things become features that we look for become much more common that that's something that we might see disappear from the biological profile that, that we determine. Because it's when you had an isolated population from 500 years ago, that's pretty easy. Modern yeah. population where people can travel all around the world, as long as it's not a closed group that only you know, marries and has children amongst the closed group, you, know, you don't know what you're going to, to see skeletally. And I think that's probably gonna be one of the things that we've just stopped trying to do. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, and this is something that um, I talk about with my students and we read about a lot in books, on getting better with adult age estimation. Because um, when you watch Bones, she'll be like, oh, that, that guy is 30 to 34 years old. We wish we could be that specific. <laughs> um, pretty much once you hit 30, things start breaking down. And that's what we're looking at, is breakdown of surfaces. And depending on your lifestyle, your diet, your genetics, some people will break down a lot more quicker than others. And um, so I don't think we'll ever be that specific, but darn it, they're gonna keep trying. Mm -hmm. They want to make it really tight. And I tell my students, I'm optimistic about so many other things, but our ability to be very specific for estimating the age of adults. So one of the things we should be able to do a better job of 
this makes me feel old because I'm 45. Um, the way we categorize adults, we have young adults, middle adults, and older adults, and our older adults are people over 50. I should hope my skeleton will look hopefully a bit better than my 99-year-old grandmother's. <laughs> so hopefully we'll be able to do a better job with older adults. Hmm. Um, but then we also need to do more research on the implication of, um, you know, when you think of um, opioid addiction, like it's bad here in southwestern PA, what impact does that have on the bone? might that cause it to break down more quickly? Will somebody who's an addict and who's been a, a chronic addict, will that age their bones more quickly? And someone's starting to look into that, but that's a relatively more recent mm. inquiry. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, there's literature out there that shows that if someone's a chronic alcoholic, that it does have an impact on their bones. Um, and so that's something else that we need to look into more as well that'll be another dimension that we can add to the profile that we provide to the deaf investigators about the individual. Hmm. What are some clear signs of say like an older skull? From my understanding it's the the sutures on the skull itself kind of start to begin to fuse together? Sometimes. Um, <laughs> the cranial sutures um, can be highly variable that um, I have one individual um, that I have analyzed in my lab whose sutures were completely wide open, um, even on the inside of the skull, and that's usually where they'll fuse first. You know, if you were just looking at the sutures, you would say, oh, that has to be a very young adult. But the texture of the bone, because I just pick it up, I'm like, that's an old person. Barring disease, older individuals will have thinner bone. Um, it'll feel lighter. Um, oftentimes, in many areas, it'll have a lot more lumps, bumps, and a, a holy texture as surfaces break down. Uh, we'll get parietal thinning on the skull. Um, and essentially, it, you kind of get a feeling that the bones are just weary. <laughs> Sometimes, I swear, some of them, they just feel like they've, they've seen things. <laughs> um, when we're looking at joint surfaces, generally they'll have a lot more holes. Um, bony protrusions, um, when you think of arthritis, Mm. Um, much more, typically much more pronounced in older individuals. Um, I, again, as I tell my students, if the bone looks really ugly, barring disease or injury, it's probably an older person. Um, so just full of holes and irregularities. Um, if it's a surface that's usually kind of oval or rounded and now it's kind of scalloped along the edges and craggy, probably an older person and barring disease or injury. Um, so, and the suture sometimes if somebody genetically might have fusion earlier, and then that usually results in a, a bizarrely shaped skull that people will notice. Nowadays, if you have that happen, they'll intervene and have surgery. You know, if they catch on that a baby skull's fusing too early, they'll step in, here in the United States at least. Um, if you have an injury, you fell and you ha hit your head, um, or you broke a bone that, and it crosses the growth plate, that might cause it to fuse too early. And that'll also impact the way that bone will grow. So again, here in the US, typically, you'll seek medical intervention and they'll keep an eye on that. So that um, if you broke that bone, that you'll still be able to see it grow properly or 
they can intervene sooner than perhaps with surgery to make sure that the length will be okay in the long run. Um, but you know, when I think of my 99-year-old grandmother versus my bones, um, <laughs> hoping that uh, I'll do a better job. Like we don't do a lot of density scans on forensic uh, material, but we could look at that too. Mm. Um, also with the spongy bone, it looks like a sponge yeah. or cake. Looks like cake. It's firm, but it looks that way. Um, that that will become more sparse in older individuals as the body's aging. Mm. Um, and so those are things that we can start looking for to help push us towards an older person. But if we have someone who had early onset menopause and a lot of hormonal irregularity, or I'll get a lot of questions about people getting hormone therapies to transition and what impact might that have on the bone. Um, and that is something where we need more research. And, and that's a population that would be potentially hard to get people willing to say, hey, can you go get regular CAT scans or density scans as you continue on with your transition from male to female or female to male um, so that we can get a grasp because as more people undergo these transitions, it increases their frequency of potentially ending up in the forensic population um, with the number of hate crimes targeted towards people who just don't conform with somebody else's perception of what's normal there's a higher chance of them ending up in our lab to be analyzed. And so um, our ability to do a better job of understanding their life history, we need a better grasp on the changes that happen to their bodies too. Mm -hmm. uh, but what kind of follow-up procedures or imaging is done in those situations, that's something I don't know. And that's something that we need to, to look at, at from a forensic perspective. But again, it's a, uh, I think, a a challenging topic how do you broach that with someone who's already right. going through a major change in their life but that's just something we need to be mindful of going mm. forward and that's where if there are associated artifacts personal effects with the body that might help to suggest our bones might be saying one thing but this looks like personal effects wise or saying something else that's a dimension you'd mention to the police to say hey as you're making your inquiries keep a mind open towards this that this might be what we're seeing here somebody who's transitioning um, and um, so we have our challenges you know we it, forensic anthropology as a recognized discipline is a little older than me and I like to say it's not that old so it's a relatively young forensic profession mm -hmm. um, and we're now we got our basics and now we have a lot more areas to get into to improve what we're able to do. Mm -hmm. And so we always have to constantly think of where do we go next? What else can we do next? How can we make this better? And that's one of the things I like working with undergrads to help them look at what are our future paths that we can take. What can they do in the future to help improve the discipline and, and to keep it going strong and going forward and doing a better job? Because you work with bones all the time, do you have any tips of how to make your bones stronger? Does milk really make bones strong, or is that just a capitalistic you need, lie? You need the calcium. You definitely need the <laughs> calcium. Um, we actually have an issue with rickets and osteomalacia in, in our Western world these days because we're so concerned about um, skin cancer, quite enough, 
that when we are outside, we're wearing too much sunscreen. We don't get in any of the exposure to the sun for our bodies to make our own vitamin D that we need for healthy bone, or the kids aren't going outside enough and they're not eating right. Um, so yeah, having that proper diet and exercise because um, bone, if it's not being stimulated, will thin out like wherever we don't need it, it will thin out and it'll be potentially weaker. You were talking about being shut-ins and this time yep. like with the COVID-19, we're all staying at home. I'm not going outside as much as I would mm. during my normal life, normal life. Um, I try to um, go for at least a two mile walk a day, but if I'm not eating right and I don't eat the best and if I'm not um, being exposed to the sun, then I'm not getting the vitamin D production that I need. And if that becomes a chronic problem, then my bones can become weaker and you can suffer pathological fractures under areas of increased stress. So you might suddenly experience a pelvic fracture just from sitting on your butt because you didn't have enough vitamin D. Um, but that's more of a chronic, it's not gonna be like after just a couple weeks, depending on how you eat and your overall health, it could be with a few months. So this shut in, shut down time can potentially have some you know, long-term effects on people's health if they're not being careful um, and worry about the elderly because they're being extra careful right now to make sure that they're not being exposed to COVID-19. But, you know, we need to make sure that they're getting all the vitamins and nutrients that they need in order to maintain their health and to keep it strong. Um, so, you know, the bones, they, they put up a good fight, but after a while, they too will show ex um, you know, the effects of poor diet and lack of exercise. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap up the conversation, is there anything uh, you want to specifically talk on or mention? I suppose one of the big things is to keep an open mind, whether it's about you know the study of death or um, interacting with folks of different cultures or even just different beliefs compared to your own. Um, because the fact that, you know, I work with dead things, oh my goodness, how often I'll be told, well, you seem like such a nice person, <laughs> but you deal with dead things. Like, what's wrong with you? Um, that this world needs all types of people of all different interests in order to keep it going. So to, especially with a lot of the contention that we see in our society today, is just approaching things with an open mind and the fact that we don't have to agree on everything, but to have the opportunity to, to hear their point of view, whether it's regarding how they want their remains to be treated in death, or for me, I wanna do research on bones, other people don't want us doing research on bones. I'm like, that's fine, you know, different cultural beliefs and respecting that. And that's something that um, you can't be taught in schools, common sense and respect. And we need more of that in society today. Um, so just to take a moment to think about things and to become educated about things before spouting out about it. Or if you need to vent first, have a private moment to do that and then think of a, a more polite way to have an interaction with another person. Um, it's just, it's kind of disheartening to see some of the, the hate and vitriol out there in the world right now when we should be coming together to help pull through and, and find ways to help the folks who really need help or to help keep people well. Um, and to, you know, sometimes we might need to make small personal sacrifices in order to achieve betterment of society as a whole. So there's a reason why myself and a lot of my students prefer working with the dead because they give you a heck of a lot less lip 
in difficulty with things. Um, you can hold a conversation with them. Very one-sided. They're not very forthcoming all the time. So tell us where we can learn more about you. And if anyone has any questions for you, where could they reach you? Well, um, you can find me on the CalU website. Um, so their email, ad well, their email, their web address is just www.calu.edu. And um, you can search for me in the directory or just in the search bar. Um, just Kuba will do it. I'm the only one there. So just K-U-B-A and you'll find me. Um, and the university has been restructuring some in a new department. So the website hasn't been updated yet. So I'm not even sure where they say I am. I'm now working more closely with the biology department. So, um, but if you search for me on the website, you'll see my usual blurb I have up there about what I've done, my CV, um, my qualifications, but they're always welcome to send me an email and that's at um, kuba at calu.edu. So, um, just K-U-B-A at calu.edu and um, they can send me an email and I'll be happy to respond. Um, in the summer months, I check my email maybe about once a week, I'll be honest. Um, but during the school year, I'm on it constantly. So um, they're depending on where we're at with the COVID-19 stuff, email is mm. probably the best way to, to reach out. And um, I'm happy to answer any question. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. But not only that, thank you for uh, inspiring students and TV shows, for helping catch bad guys and pushing for the advancement of forensic science, which is much needed. For all that, thank you so much. Thank you. And stay well. Oh, thank you. You too. <laughs> Thank you for watching the Death Science Podcast. For updates and new episodes, subscribe right now. It's quick at deathscience.org. Remember that we all must die one day, so talk to your loved ones now about your post-life plans for your body. Learn more about creative and beneficial post-life plans at restinggrounds.org. I'm your host, Jeremy, signing off of another episode. Thank you and memento mori.